0: KCAA Loma Linda The
1: Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM
2: in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California, and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to The Water Zone Show this evening. Good afternoon, America, and good afternoon to everybody listening around the world. Welcome to The Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Stadies, and we are the hosts of the show. And hope everybody's having a good day today. And uh, no matter where you're located, you're either getting sunshine, cloudiness, or rain. Because I guess that's the only three things you can get. So, Chris, how are you doing today? Great,
3: buddy. And I am, uh, yeah, I am in America. So thanks for recognizing my location, buddy. I appreciate it. And we are we are number three on your list. Rain today.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, we got cloud- well, cloudiness. The sun's starting to come out now. But it was cloudy all day and into the 60s. So uh, we did have a couple of ra- a couple of drops of rain a couple of days ago, but it wasn't much of anything. Uh, it was less than you'd even get at a car wash. So, yeah, like well, you it.
3: You know how critical it is for California with the state that we're in, uh, the drought conditions and things like that. So it'll be interesting to bring uh, Chris on from Maven's Notebook in just a minute here. I know you're going to introduce her and find out where we're going because a lot of a lot of water in the last 20 days, right? Right during Christmas, over the Christmas holiday and here in through New Year's, that atmospheric river, as they call it, has uh, has just blown into California with force, man, and and floods and people, uh, you know, getting forced out of their homes, mudslides and all that stuff are happening already. Let's see if we can find
2: out what an impact it's going to have on the state. Yeah, we should get the music, Crimea River. And uh, play that every time we talk about that. So anyway, here's the purveyor yeah. of David's notebook and the, the the fabulous, most wonderful lady in the water business that we know, Miss Chris Austin.
4: Hey, how you doing, everyone? Hi. Yeah, I... we're wet up here in the in Northern California, no doubt. We've been getting hit pretty bad. A uh, uh, lot of uh, flooding and power outages in sacramento and uh flooding in the bay area uh it's uh and and these storms just keep coming apparently there's two more sort of on the way uh so a lot of water
2: up here a lot of water um, are, they cap- but- are they are they ca- catching or capturing the the all the runoff and the, the floods somewhere or not <laughs>
4: Well, I, you know, there's a the, these are the kinds of uh, storms that, you know, climatologists are saying that we're going to get more of these storms that drop a lot of river, a lot of water in a very small period of time, and uh, certainly the state has been moving towards doing that. I do know that uh, more groundwater agencies this year applied for temporary permits to uh, capture rainwater and uh, put it on their fields to recharge um, aquifers because that's been one very promising way of uh, addressing our groundwater problems. They've they've actually found that certain types of crops like, like grapes and like almonds can tolerate being flooded in the winter. And which allows then that water to, you know, the farmer puts the water on the field and then it soaks into the aquifer and raises the level. And uh, there's, I think we're going to see more of those types of projects. Um, I think another project that would be capturing some of this would be uh, the Site Reservoir, which is a reservoir that's proposed that, um, they, I think, it will get built. It has a lot of support. They've been really acquiring a lot of funding, and and this would be the kind of time when the flood, the the water on the Sacramento River is is very high. There's just a ton of flow, uh, flowing down it that they would be moving that water up into that reservoir. Um. So, but you know, the challenge is that uh our reservoirs are what they people refer to as rim reservoirs they're sort of way up in the mountains and they're great for catching the snowpack but there's an awful lot of water that falls on the valley floor below those reservoirs so that's why the site reservoir project is you know that's where they see that they're going to get their water Um, it's a problem in the San Joaquin Valley like Fryant Reservoir uh, is they're they're actually having to release water uh, because they have to lower the level in the reservoir for to be able to take the snow that's accumulating when it melts above the reservoir. And actually, Fryant is a, is a small reservoir for the size of its watershed. So this is actually quite common for Fryant that they have to release water to really draw that reservoir down because there's a lot of snow up in the mountains and flood control is the primary one of the primary purposes for that reservoir so you know there's a lot a lot of stuff going on a, a lot of rain falling and uh, you know hopefully this will make a difference but we'll see it will be I'm certain at some point somebody will do a, a take a look at the numbers of how how much what this water this year actually you know went into groundwater aquifers. I'm sure that PPIC or somebody will you know will estimate that. So it's going to be interesting to see.
3: Yeah, Chris, you know it's hard to it's hard to look visually at a reservoir and then make a judgment about how fast it's filling because um, you know some. Sometimes, if a, if a reservoir is—and we've talked about this before, Chris—if it's, if it's wide and shallow, it will fill differently than a narrow and, and a deep reservoir. And also, the what watershed that that reservoir is fed by has a lot to do with with the recharge, the surface water recharge rate, right?
4: Yeah. And, you know, like when you look at the levels of where the reservoirs are and where these storms are raising them, you can, you know, Shasta seems to be kind of the slow one. Lake Oroville is rising uh, pretty nicely. Uh, Lake Mendocino, which is over in the Napa-Sonoma area, it's actually getting close to average level for this time of year, which is actually quite amazing. Yeah. Um you know, because they, they were circling the drain back in the summer. Um, but Shasta doesn't seem to rise as fast, and I've been sort of asking why um, why that is. And uh, apparently, you know, the for the two reasons you just said, you know, for some reason the watershed is, uh, is and this happened last year, uh, there was more water in the Feather River watershed, which goes into Oroville, then, or more precipitation in that basin than there was in Shasta. Sometimes storms, the way they come in, uh, and also Shasta is, is larger and a bit shallower than Oroville, so it doesn't seem to rise as fast. Uh, but Folsom now, Folsom is is rising too, and they've had to uh, release water out of Folsom as well. So and, and what's interesting is that, you know, we have so many water rights and all this water is spoken for, but uh when it rains like this there's you know, actually they reclamation put out a call that, you know, if you want this water on the American River, you you can have this water now. Um the problem is that there's not a lot of farming or or things going on right now for people to use this water. So, you know, what well, how many takers they'll get? I don't know, yeah. but but the, the offer's out there, uh. So yeah,
3: well I know that the, you know the, you, we we always get arguments and we all we always get uh, people raise the flag and hire a brass band when there's too little water or when there's a lot of water, right? So um, with all this rain oh, coming, yeah. in, I, I'm sure it's just going to open up to, you know lots of different conversations we were talking right before the show Chris and Rob uh, I know you're out there about uh, the town I live in and the new structured tiered water rates that have just been introduced as of January 1st you know you look on the on the website and the social media for the city and it's just it's just crowded with everybody's opinion and you know the pro- you know the problem with opinions if you ask for them you'll get them right <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh I thought you were going to say something else <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you were you were yeah you were talking about how they have signs all over the place telling yeah. people you know one one day a week watering, which is you know awfully uh ironic when it's raining you know as much as it is, but as we were talking you know before the show, I think you know what one of the easiest ways to save water is to turn off your sprinklers when it's raining, you know. I mean, it's simple. It's not going to hurt. But uh, the problem, I think, is that uh, for a lot of people, their sprinkler box is just like a black box that they know nothing about. And uh, I think they hesitate to touch it. Um, And I think that's something that we just have to get past. It's not that hard. I know... I know how to go flip the switch to off in my sprinkler boxes. So if I can do it, I think other people can. But I, that's one thing I see is, you know, sometimes even in the rain, people are watering. And
2: yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: it's not, just, it's just, it's not just, just turning it off. It's turning it off and leaving it off until it, 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 it's time to turn it back on.
4: Right. Because
2: you right. can have heavy, heavy rains and you might not need to turn that water on. Uh, for three three or four days. But even people, longer, people, you know. Yeah, people, people get into the habit of watering a schedule. You know, before we had all these fancy, intelligent irrigation controllers, smart controllers, people, for example, they turn it on, say, 10 minutes for each zone and every single, waters every day, okay? And that's what they're used to. So when it gets turned off, even with these smart controllers, people say, oh, there's something wrong with the controller, it's not watering today. You really didn't need to water and the, and the intelligence of the controller says you don't need to do it but people are used to having it the way they did it years ago in the manual mode and they just go back and turn it on
4: yeah and that's a problem too even that they have you know when people install uh, low water landscapes they also have to learn to change their watering of those landscapes because you know Sometimes people just go back to watering the same way they watered when it was grass. you know, well, I gotta water it every day, you know, and that's and and also some of the native plants at different times of the year might look um you know not optimal. You might think they're dead, so people start watering oh, them, really well, they're north just north 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 dormant, north you know
2: they, they do that in Arizona, trust me. <laughs> Yeah, okay. yeah. It's, the same way. it's just habit and education, and that's what they need to, to do. And plus, I personally believe in smart irrigation controllers, but I also believe that there should be ways of training the, the person uh, whose home it is. Not only – a lot of times they, they leave it to their landscaping guy, and but when it rains and things happen, it's not the day the landscape guy comes. So I think it's really important for people who want to get those and use them. It's a great – Great way to conserve to, to water and, and reduce your expenditures, but you really need to know how they work.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And when you change your landscaping, you need to understand that the requirements for watering have changed. And you know, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. changing habits. You know, definitely.
3: Yeah. There's there's also the influence on the pocketbook guys, right? I mean, you know, do you do you affect change when you when you put into uh, affect you know tiered water rates as I just mentioned you know a, you know a little earlier and the fairness of that I think when I when I look at all the stuff that I see and I read and I get and I get posted uh, that gets posted I really get, I see a lot of these people arguing about the fact that why you know why do we have tiered rates when general water use general water cost is already low anyway it's artificially low right we we don't pay as much as we should. Uh, for for water in general, and then you get the argument that that public utilities commission, who by the way are the ones that that actually set the water rates, they control that the pricing of, of water in in,
4: in in publicly in pub in, in investor owned utilities.
3: Yes, right. Yeah, agree, yeah. agree. And then and then you get other water. You know, you get local water agents. These, that put these tiered rates into effect. But, the, you know, the basic component is, well, why, if you do that, isn't that really focusing on on uh, punishing somebody for, for a high water use or making a choice to want a green lawn or something like that versus uh, equally charging everybody at the true cost of water? So I'm sure that argument is going to come up again.
2: Oh, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, it's like, like uh, non-potable water. You know, everybody years ago, as it starts to get more popular, hey, this is great. It's a whole lot cheaper and everything else. Well, guess what? The rate of that is going up quite well as well.
4: Yeah. So, and, in, you know, the reason why we have tiered rates, the reason why we have these pressures is because they're applying the same model that they applied with electricity. You know, it's we California is using a lot of electricity, and so the power people say we need to build some more power plants. But power plants are are not popular. <laughs> you know, people don't want to live next to one. And at some point, you know, do we want to keep building power plants, or do we want to go the other way and try and be more efficient? So what? California decided I don't know how long ago is they said they said okay utility companies you need to reduce uh your customer demand now how you going to do that they can't you know they that's why they have tiered water tiered electrical rates that's why solar panel people come to your house get you on solar reduce the load on the electricity I mean all those sorts of programs uh and and that's the same way that we're moving in in water unfortunately water is expensive it's never a popular thing to have to raise rates but uh but sometimes you know you just have to do it and i think the tiered water rates are a way to you know the the way that they work is that if you are using a lot of water then you are paying uh, and you're using more water than other people in your district or in your area, then you're actually, they're taking that money from that higher tier and they're using that to go find more water, whether they have to transfer or maybe they got to build a recycled water plant or something. So it's, it's shifting the cost of finding that more water, wherever it's going to come from, onto the people who are using the most. Uh, and it makes it, you know, it, and if you're in a low-income household and you don't have a lot of money, then you have a rate that's lower. You use, you don't use a lot of water, you have a low rate. You You shouldn't have to go and contribute to getting more water if you're, you know, you're conservative and you're staying within a basic allotment. So um, I do think tiered rates are fair, uh, but they're not, not it's never popular for people to have to pay more for something.
3: No, (laughs) I don't think, unfortunately. Yeah, I wasn't jumping on one side of the other really. Chris just, you know, like putting the argument out there and what I've, <clears throat> what I see when I read the, the posts and social media and all that stuff oh yeah right here in the town in the town I live in I mean you know it's a it's a crucial issue these these people are you know these people are writing stuff in these posts that, that are the crazy sometimes and if you're you know if if
4: you're kind of like you don't have a lot of money, uh, maybe you're on a fixed income you're retired uh, nobody likes to pay more for things that they don't have to so it's interesting that you know we have if your utility wants to raise rates then you can protest to the CPUC you can protest at a hearing if it's a public water agency and and you can fight these things that's now, wouldn't it be nice if when the cell phone bill, they say, hey, we're cell phone bills going up. Wouldn't you like to be able to go? No, you can't raise my cell phone bill. <laughs> Chris humbling.
3: Many- humbling. Oh, oh humbling. my gosh. Yes. Chris, if you're running for office, I'll vote for you.
2: <laughs> but Chris, but Chris, mm. how, how many times has the public utilities set back rates?
4: Well, they usually don't set them back, but they have denied uh, rate increases if
2: yeah, enough not, people not very, get in there and, yeah, and protest. Not, not, not a whole lot. And Chris, in your city, I know uh, there's they have a whole group of people or an organization going out and finding these. I'll call it water wasters or water heavy water users. What what are they finding? Are they finding them a heavy dollar amount, or what are they doing?
3: So the first thing that they'll do is give them a warning and 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 uh, you know tell them, give them a sheet that essentially that tells them ways to <clears throat> things that they can do to uh, prevent the overuse of water. They also do an analysis on that property to find out if they are appropriately applying uh, or using water in their, in an appropriate fashion. If that doesn't work, then um, and they will threaten with fines and if that doesn't work they'll put a restrictor on your um meter. So. <laughs>
4: yeah, it, it, and you know of course we we should note that in your area Chris uh who, who is your water agency?
3: So it's Golden State Water, Three Valleys, Three Valleys Municipal Water District.
4: Yeah, you're so I think you're <laughs> Somewhat, you're in like metropolitan-ish area. I don't know if you're a metropolitan contractor.
3: It's an MWD contracted agency. Yeah, it is.
4: Yeah, metropolitan, uh, their water storage supplies are way, way, way low, almost scary low. Um, and they're having to crack down because there's just there's a real chance that you know that they're going to have some real issues in delivering water Uh, last year it was just for the state water project dependent areas and uh, that's likely to continue um, if unless we have a really nice big wet year on the state water project but if it you know if it April comes and there's not a lot of water there. That will continue. And for the areas of metropolitan that are served by the Colorado River, well, y'all been reading the news, then you know that uh, yeah. you know the Colorado River is in yeah. some serious serious problems. And yeah, serious. the metropolitan, much of their storage is actually sitting in Lake Mead in what they call an ICS account. Um, that they are restricted from uh, drawing from, and they've kind of come to the conclusion because we all know bigger cuts are coming on the Colorado River that they're not they're going to have to leave that water there to, to satisfy future contributions right. to the river. So they can't draw their water from Lake Mead. So. Metropolitan is in a very serious water situation, and they need people to conserve in a big, bad way.
3: Yeah, I agree. So before before we get to the bottom of the hour, and I know, Rob, we're almost almost there, buddy, but let me ask Chris another question, just in fairness, because we see, you know, all this rain, and I've read a couple of articles that say, hey, the drought is over, blah, blah, blah. So just your opinion real quick, Chris, I think that's optimistic. Do you agree?
4: oh this
3: way optimistic you know we've been here before
4: we've been here before um you know and we'll likely be here again it's the nature of california it's what's there on april 1st that's going to make the difference and you know i mean we we actually had it happen when was it uh i think back in the 2000s sometime we had all these storms came in and then the Big, big, beautiful snowpack, and then a big high-pressure system came in, and temperatures rose like up to 80 on the valley floor and warm up in the mountains, and all that snow melted, and it came down, and it flooded.
3: Yeah.
4: (laughs) It flooded Reno. Mm -hmm. It flooded in California um I remember the 395 it it washed out a whole section of the 395 that goes through the Walker River Valley there or, you know so it's um yeah it, anything can happen and now we're we're yeah. hoping that it keeps coming we're hoping that the weather stays cold cuz we don't want to repeat that flooding but uh it's anybody's guess right now will you know that lady? It won't be over till the fat lady sings, and she hasn't even gotten on stage or not even approaching the microphone. Wow.
2: Well, that's a good thing. Anyway, we're coming to our commercial break, and, and for our listeners uh, to find out more of what's going on in California with your water and and everything that's happening with the weather and such, go to mavensnotebook.com dot com, and you can become a subscriber or you can become a sponsor of that. And every day in the morning. Uh, You get all these wonderful uh, information from uh, from Chris, and uh, it keeps you up informed of more than you're going to read in a regular newspaper. So, I uh, (laughs) uh, giving direction everybody go go do that. It's uh, it's worthwhile to you. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll we'll hear from you next week. You have a good week, and uh, hope you stay wet.
4: (laughs) Yes, I hope we all stay wet, (laughs) (laughs) but not flooded. Wet, but
2: not too wet. Right. Right. Take
1: care. All right, we'll be back in a few uh, few minutes after our commercial break. So stand by. KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express
0: 106.5 FM.
1: Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulation. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch, or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. Water is one of the biggest expenses
5: for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623 623- 594
2: This is KCAA. All right. Uh, welcome back to the uh, second half of the uh, water zone. And, uh, Chris, uh, you remember last week we had our buddy Travis Lupin talking about the uh, nation plants and, uh, I know. We, I was talking to uh, Reese Tisdale, and he's the uh, CEO of uh, Bluefield Research, and he he was having a conversation with John Berryman, who's uh, in charge of his marketing group. An interesting conversation about what's happening with that water. Uh, let's tune in and see what uh, see what they're going to say.
5: Here
6: we go. If anybody's reading newspapers and following along, I think California drought conditions has been under assessment for a long time, and and we're seeing more and more headlines, I thought that this was probably a good time to provide our perspective on um, kind of what's happening and then just see where we see things heading in the future. So last week uh, there was an announcement of uh, the Poseidon Waters Huntington Beach desal plant, large scale desal that was rejected. We are talking about different reservoirs, like Powell, Lake Mead that are at extremely low positions right now, which is going to impact hydroelectric power, um, and that can obviously ripple out to affecting millions and millions of, of people in California. I think every single county in California, all 58, is under a drought emergency proclamation right now, so that obviously lends itself to discussions around conservation from both the residential and commercial side. So a lot to unpack, but I figure let's just give you the mic for a couple of minutes and just take us through in any orderly fashion that you can, what you think is going on right now.
0: Yeah, I think, so thanks for that intro. And this is an interesting, one, because uh, it'll house us to unpack a lot of things. You're exactly right. There are a lot of things happening, not only within California, but within the West as a whole, both, like you said, drought. So California is in drought. It seems to have been this way really since the founding of Bluefield Research, which has been the better part of a decade, that California has been under some kind of water stress. You know, and I think it really came to head over the past couple of weeks because we've been looking at water usage data. Truth be told, it's somewhat natural that when we get into a drought, water usage goes up because people don't have the rainwater or rains to water their lawns so they then turn to other sources, whether it be municipal sources, but also groundwater withdrawals for things like agriculture as well. So water usage in California has been climbing, but it's also up almost 20% from where this time in 2020. So it's jumped dramatically. Now this is happening amidst voluntary requests for water conservation from, from the governor in california and it's sort of we're running in two different directions the government and the administration and state policymakers are saying hey everybody needs to conserve water but in fact no one seems to be doing that and which sets us on an uncomfortable path going forward i wouldn't even say it's dramatically different if anything we've been heading in this direction for a while and no one seems to want to address the uh light at the end of the tunnel, as some might say, it's unfortunately a train coming our way, <laughs> not actual light at the end of the tunnel.
6: I mean, it, it, are we basically seeing um, firsthand that without a mandate in place, it's just it's just not going to happen? People just aren't going to voluntarily do this kind of?
0: Yeah, I no, I, I don't think they will. And I think they're, I mean, it, it works, right? And we were talking a little bit before we jumped on this call, and that is you know, the mandates in 2014, 2015 pretty much worked, right? There were penalties in place where the um, more than 400 urban water systems were tasked with managing water usage and there were penalties put in place and the target was 25% and overall the state hit, I think, 23.9, 24% pretty close to So almost hit the targeted mandate, which It's great a great achievement now the challenge to that is that success has potentially made it harder to achieve additional conservation targets but all indications are under the voluntary targets there's not there's no reduction in fact our the hour um i shouldn't even say hour we're both on the east coast but hey we're all on this together the um water usage has gone up so I think mandates do work. We're also in a unique political environment. Is it unique anymore? But we've had lockdowns, shutdowns, COVID, masks, et cetera, et cetera. I think people are tired of the man, uh, as some may call him or her, um, the government telling them what to do. Uh, I think there's a little bit of that. And I think there's just a reality check that needs to happen about the severity of what is in fact happening and not to get ahead of ourselves here, but we may find out this summer when there's no power or they're rolling blackouts, which we can get into in a minute. So now that being said, there are certain places like Metropolitan Water District, LADWP, they've started implementing lawn watering measures, you know, one day a week, two days a week but at this point, as we've seen in places like Las Vegas, you know, at some point the city or the state or someone has to come in and say, "Quit watering your. La- get rid of the lawns. Get rid of the swimming." But I mean, if you want the world's, that's not critical to our lives. Otherwise, it's going to get a lot more expensive.
6: Well, can I just tackle that for a second with you as well? So, we are talking about residential you know, residents using less water, but how much of an impact is that actually gonna have on the whole? Like how big of a slice of the pie is that as opposed to, you know, the industrial sectors?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that in, that in and of itself is a problem. I mean, residential or urban water usage represents about 8% of the total pie in California. So pretty small, right? But it's also probably the place or the segment in which there can be notable strides or gains made, right? You can point to users. Agriculture, which makes up the lion's share of of water usage, not only in California, but just globally speaking, it's all very sort of, uh, I don't know, non-point source. You know, it's groundwater withdrawals, it's surface water usage. I mean, there's irrigation from, you know, it's coming from a lot of different places and it's hard to put your finger on. And also to say, hey, you've got to stop that. Now, there are issues. What ends up happening is groundwater is withdrawn and there's also things like land subsidence. In some areas, there could be saltwater intrusion into aquifers because of overdrawing. We definitely see that in Florida and the East Coast and other parts, but, um, yeah, the urban water usage is a small share, to your point, but that being said, it's still an area that people need to focus on.
6: So also, it's probably the area where you can make a handbrake turn and have a bit of a quicker response as opposed to all the things that go into an agricultural industrial change for water usage is probably a lot more hard to go through and work through as opposed to just telling everybody to use less water.
0: Exactly, and then you also have the water rights issues in the West, and that's a whole nother, you know ball of wax um, that that complicates things and how water usage. But you know things like State Water Project uh, in California and these large water conveyances. I mean, you know the allocations have been cut back. You know the Colorado River at the same time is pretty low these days. So we've seen more recently that you know farmers in Arizona they're not going to get their allocations as well, because of, of things like drought and the impacts of climate. So you're right. A handbrake is a good way to put it. You can sort of point at the domestic or residential light like commercial users and say, hey, can we improve this? And there, and there are technologies and solutions out there to not only help them reduce water usage, but also even to amplify supply.
6: Well, that's a perfect segue so obviously we're talking about using less water there are solutions in place to increase supply and i guess that's maybe where we can start talking about the desal market a little bit in the us i mean boy it it seems funny that this would come at this time right last week is when they reject a large-scale desal plant why why now when we're talking about such a little supply of water? Don't we need everything that we can get?
0: Uh, one would think. So it's, it's more complicated than just saying Southern California or Orange County, in this case, they're in a drought, therefore they should pay, do whatever it takes to add supply. In all fairness to those opposed to the desal plant, They are doing things like wastewater reuse, where they're recharging aquifers. So they they have implemented other solutions uh, to augment their supplies. At the same time, I think you know, as we've learned in places like Australia, you you kind of, or San Diego, for that matter, which is where the largest desal plant in the U.S. is, also developed by Poseidon Water, is that you know. It does provide somewhat of an insurance policy. Like this this challenge is not going away. And it is the most expensive water out there. Let's not kid ourselves. I I get it. So our take is this is probably a last gasp for a large-scale desal in the U.S., quite honestly. There's not a lot of, you know, you may see some in places like Florida, but it's slow going. These projects are, you know, this Huntington Beach one, it was going to cost over a billion dollars. And they are alternatives. Like I said, wastewater reuse is a more cost effective solution. The challenge with that is you can reclaim and reuse wastewater all day long, but you have to have somewhere, you have to find off takers, you have to move it to where it needs to be. Are others willing to use it? Will it be potable? Will it be just for irrigation? There's a lot of complexity about sort of the, the buyer and seller arrangements on the back end of that. but. Also, this Huntington Beach project, it's been in development for more than two decades. So if we can't come to terms at this point after two decades, several droughts, then I hate to say give up the dream. It's frustrating because there's hundreds of desal plants all over the world, whether it be the Middle East, whether it be Spain, whether it be... Chile, for the mining industry or Australia, they work. The technology works. If the pushback is cost, well, I'm a little concerned that, you know, well, quite honestly, probably in a place like California, water should cost more given that there it's not raining very much and the snowpack levels are pretty, pretty low. So I would say, if anything, it's a little frustrating to say that it's gotten to this point. And the pushback has really been a couple things. That would be one. The cost is the supply needed. Now, I think there's some people definitely have a maybe a good argument that it's not needed. They have alternative supplies, but also the environmentalists, whether it be you know disturbance to the to the seabed and what it means for you know wildlife and such. But it um, the tone, uh, if anything, is a little strange about. Uh, rejecting the permit after after so long so
6: well so as a result i mean are we i guess we've been looking at water reefs for a long time and that's also nothing new but i mean are those projects that we're tracking they're proliferating right there's a lot more of them coming up and not only just in these southwestern kind of water stressed states but other regions as well right isn't that what we've been noticing
0: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I'd say if anything, the last drought was really a a boon for wastewater reuse. I mean, I think a lot, you know, we look at wastewater projects that the the project pipeline and I think we have, uh, you know, we put our research over 650, almost 700 projects that we've seen A big chunk of that is in fact in california or really just the west as a whole it's really in about nine states where you're seeing it that would also include florida they've got their own sort of water stress issue like i mentioned earlier about uh, aquifer over withdrawals and and salinity in the water supply but you know it is if anything a drought has been the catalyst for that it is you know the water is being treated In many cases, it's just going into ocean. It's basically treated to potable standards and sent to an ocean outfall and out into the ocean. And hey, that's, you know, so to not reuse or reclaim wastewater supply is given the state of the world and where we see things happening is kind of crazy. And that people can, are have been really innovative. You know, it's, you know, the supplies have been used for everything for data centers to power plants to just cooling systems for industrial facilities to drinking water, so potable drinking water. Uh, I think if we haven't gotten beyond the the ickiness factor of drinking you know, reclaimed and treated wastewater, which is, in my argument, is cleaner than what's sitting in the reservoir, then we'll be forced to. And I think that the way, next real wave that we're seeing is one, the move for industrial and commercial facilities to do so, but also as it will migrate eastward because there are other types of water stresses east. So, hey, let's give it to California for setting the stage for that uh, eastward expansion in this case.
6: Totally, and and on the corporate side, I mean, I know Google's brand new campus um, is filled with things like rainwater capture um, off their roofs, and, and obviously it's out of necessity, but maybe that kind of sets the example for new facilities or new campuses that are being built throughout the rest of the country.
0: Yeah, and I mean as we as we primarily talk about California, San Francisco has really, you know, gone out of its way. And and I think I've talked about this whether it be on the future of water, but also on Dave McGimsey's podcast, what the water values podcast, and that is San Francisco. Um, they've implemented a policy several years ago. It was any new Property or facility that was built over 250,000 square feet was mandated or obligated to install on site water reuse and treatment. And so the Salesforce Tower, which is if that's the poster child of that policy, um, is one example. But since then, they've actually, I believe it was either late 2021 or early this year, I can't recall exactly that they've reduced that square footage requirement down to, I think is it a hundred thousand square feet. So they're turning the screw, and their advantages to cities doing this. And I think that's the, you know, the driver to a municipality or a government entity, county level, state level, whoever's in charge of the water supply and really the assets is in some cases population may be increasing or demand pressures on the infrastructure assets are growing. So the auto responses, well, we're reaching a certain threshold, therefore we just need to add more capacity, you know, wastewater treatment capacity and water treatment capacity. Well I think what San Francisco has done is they've looked at it more holistically and said, if we can get the stakeholders to reduce the demands and and or on the services, whether it be water supply or wastewater treatment, then it lowers the need or reduces the the short term need for any capacity additions and capacity additions mean money. And so that's a huge it's a thoughtful way of doing it. I'm not gonna say it's perfect, but you know, it's difficult when the market landscape is so fragmented, everybody's doing their own thing. If everything was centralized, would it be easier? Nah, possibly, but that's not gonna happen anytime soon.
6: Yeah, and I think these stopgap solutions have been kind of plagued nationwide and across any kind of you know utility sector. It's it's always, what's this quick quick fix that we can do now because it's hard to think long-term when things are happening in real time. But yeah, I think there's a long way to go there. Can we bring this into speaking of other kind of utilities? I mean, just the interconnectivity between water and energy. And if we want to talk about California some more, I mean, the decreasing levels of these major reservoirs that are providing hydroelectric power to to millions of people right? in the dams, talk to us about that
0: yeah i think i um, mean i think that if anything was the catalyst to this recent research we put out was exactly that and the reason for that was you know lake mead and lake powell the 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 levels are going down dramatically i mean everybody's seen the the rings but what people don't realize is you look at it on a photograph you look at these white rings you're like oh wow that's a lot They've gone down like eighty to a hundred feet. Well, that's like we're talking like seven to ten stories, right? I mean, when you stand next to a building and say water levels have dropped by this much, it's pretty incredible. But that being said, why else are we concerned about this? Because if Glen Canyon Dam cannot produce generate power because water levels are so low because you know the into water intake is above the water level, then there are tens of millions of people that could, could and or will be impacted by potential uh, rolling blackouts or brownouts. I've lived in California during brownouts. It was a wholly different story. Those are those the Enron days. But the issue is, you know, from a water perspective, at least through the lens that we see it, is that, do all utilities have backup power? Or are they insulated from not only the risks of not having the power? And sure, they may have diesel generators on site. They may be, have more sophisticated microgrids in place. And I know there's battery storage and things like that being deployed. But you know, everybody's looking, you know, down the road and saying, "Oh boy, they're going to be wildfires." And there have been lawsuits. There have been instances where utilities have been, water, wastewater utilities have been held accountable for not being able to provide service because of what I would call force majeure events. And so that is a challenge in and of itself. And so, you know, this interconnectivity, we saw it happen with the Texas, the winter storm in Texas, uh, was that last year, two years ago? Time flies when you're having fun, I suppose. but. We're seeing um, utilities in Texas also implementing in places like Houston, putting in on-site power generation through battery storage or gas backup to prevent or provide resiliency to climatic
6: events. So this is kind of a, a broader question, but why the emphasis on what's happening in California? I mean, why should, we are a global market research firm why why do we care enough to to put out a research note and and have a whole podcast on what's happening in California is it just because the population of California is that of a small country is it because these are kind of telling signs of of perhaps what's going to happen in other regions
0: yeah i think that's a good question um i mean we're from the east coast we you know i think it this wouldn't be the first time that we said if california wants to drift off into the pacific and be done with it yeah you know that's this sort of the east coast yeah east coast west joke uh, west coast joke but um i'm sure they feel differently about us as well but that being said um, it's the most obvious example in the u.s despite all of the abundance all of the resources i mean california in and of itself is Depending on how you measure it, some argue that it's the sixth largest economy in the world. Right, there are 36 million people that live there. Um, it's also one of one of, if not the most productive agricultural region in the world. So, it has a major economic impact not only on the U.S. but on the world. And like anything else, whether it be renewable power, or you know, is a good example. What happens in in places like California? Can, and environmental regulations would be another it can be an, an indicator or a bellwether to what is going to happen in the rest of the U.S. For water, it is it, it along with the rest with the Western U.S. is somewhat unique from where many of the federal policymakers, in fact, are located. But it, I think you're you're right. It's uh, demonstrative or an, another global example, whether it be. Australia or South Africa in day zero. I mean, they've been through it with Cape Town um, over the past couple of years. So it's an indicator where there are resources and technologies kit that can be deployed to showcase. Here's how it can be. De- Look, the U.S. is, by volume, is the largest um, provider of reclaimed or reused wastewater um, by volume much of that is in fact in California um do they need more of it yes um but i think that's a big a big reason why it is an indicator of what can and maybe shouldn't be done um depending on your side of the argument
6: right yeah can we end this on a on a sanguine note i mean are you do you see opportunities are you hopeful about Certain solutions, or or the social aspect of all this,
0: yeah. I no, I absolutely am. I think um, where I am, I bet I've sort of been on this train for a while. Where and maybe this is where we got into it was asking about the domestic water users and voluntary mandates. The question is: Do people are they educated enough to understand the implications of you know water usage? You know, do they have a swimming pool? Do they water their lawn? Do they care? Um, but really the the title change really might happen at the commercial and or industrial level because there are financial implications for both notable financial f- implications for them, uh, both rising cost of water, rising cost of wastewater treatment, um, but there's also then the ESG. This is an ongoing debate even internally at Bluefield about is, I mean, if you follow Elon Musk, he says that ESG is, you know, a bunch of baloney. And he's right in some ways, but the bottom line is I think there are companies that are seeing financial drivers for some of their decisions, whether it be to address carbon, which therefore impacts water supplies and or water usage and vice versa. So, um, yeah, I think there is opportunity. So, and I think, you know, more recently, I know one of our analysts who put something out Back to the domestic water users, like home builders, right? why are they building homes or should they be building homes? a better way to put it without smarter uh more efficient water systems and water management systems within the within the new build absolutely that's the case, so we're seeing firms like kB homes uh, doing agreements with with these smart water uh households uh, water management firms and software companies so yeah there's a it's it there is a lot happening well that was good information and uh, it's nice to have smart
2: people on and uh, we'll catch yeah. Up with yeah we'll catch up with them at another time and, and and explore this in more detail so everybody thanks for listening in today Chris and I want to wish you a, a great week and a good weekend and the most important thing we want you to do is